Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thank you, Brian. Well, children, uh, or parents, you can dismiss your children, or children, you can dismiss yourselves. Um, For Children's Church, if you so desire. Um, As Brian said, my name is Josh Hollowell, and uh, I'm a ruling elder here at the church, and really excited to be here this morning. I stood behind the pulpit before everyone got here, and I was a little like, I've never stood back here, so this is, this is unique. So I'm really excited for this morning, though. Um, and if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. It's Romans 1, 16 to 17. If you have that, please stand for the reading of God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Please pray with me. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word? You promise that your word does not go out empty, but it accomplishes your purposes. So, Lord, would you do that this morning, and would you glorify your name? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, everyone is looking for power to change. People recognize that life is not the way it's supposed to be, and so we clamor after things. We uh, we clamor for things that would give us the power to change. The power to get rid of things we don't like in our lives, to save us from who we are, to be who we want to be. This was brought to the forefront for me this week as I read an article about the power of yoga. The article was talking about why the yoga community in the city of Pittsburgh was growing. And it said, because people are seeing its benefits. It's hard to keep something like this under wraps when it's the catalyst for such powerful emotional, spiritual and physical change. Now, this is not a sermon on the evils of yoga. Though I do think with comments like this, Christians should be a little weary of engaging in activities with such new age spiritual overtones. But what I want to pick up on is the fact that people are running to this because others are convinced about its power to change them. And they're talking about it unashamedly. People are placing their hope in yoga to save them. It seems so silly to us, right? But is it? Are we really that much different? I mean, don't we run to the next fad of self-improvement as everyone else? Don't we look within ourselves for change? Aren't we tempted to say that change comes somewhere other than the gospel? Are we really unashamed of the power of the gospel to change to save, and to conquer? Or are we ashamed of that? Let me give you a quick example of how this, how subtle this is and works out in my own life. I knew that I'd be preaching here uh, at New Life this summer a few months ago. So I've been thinking about this for a long time. And if you know anything about me or crew here at Ball State, which I'm on staff with, all we do is talk about the gospel. We're a gospel-centered movement 
This is a gospel-centered church. Uh, I own at least 20, if not 30 books with gospel in the title or subtitle. I have name badges from all the gospel-centered conferences that I've attended. Uh, And I say all this not to boost my pride or tell you how great I am, but to actually highlight how easy it is to doubt the gospel. I'm really excited about this gospel awakening that's happening today and praise Jesus for it and his work in my own life and across our country. But with all of that, I was nervous to preach at New Life. Still am a little bit. Uh, Because we get the gospel. I thought to myself, they already know that. We talk about it all the time. What do I have to say to them? What could I possibly add to the rich gospel-centeredness of this church? I need to give them something new or some new insight. I was tempted to doubt the power and the priority of the gospel. Then, while I was at Together for the Gospel, one of these gospel-centered conferences in April, I heard a sermon by a pastor named Thabiti Anabwile, entitled, Will Your Gospel Transform a Terrorist? And in that sermon, he said that the biggest deterrent to gospel ministry is the lack of confidence that we have in the power of the gospel to save. And then he preached the gospel to us. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Do I really trust the gospel? Does it affect everything about my life? And the Lord corrected me with that message and set my thinking towards this text for this morning. And I again set a new and firmer resolve, one that I'll need to set tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Focus on the gospel. So where are you tempted to doubt the power of the gospel in your life? Is it that scary neighbor that you would never talk about Jesus with or even talk with for that matter? Or that relative who mocks Christianity or the friend who's openly gay Do you doubt that the gospel is powerful to save and to transform? Or maybe it's in your own life. That sin pattern that you hide, that no one knows about, that you feel enslaved to. You've tried everything, but it just seems hopeless. You don't have the power to change. Or is it reflected in your prayer life? You fear coming before the Lord because of your shame, your past and your present sin struggles? Or is it in your relationships? You just can't forgive that person again. They're in a pattern of sin. They'll never change. I cannot be reconciled to them. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've been around church your whole life, but you just can't believe that something Jesus did 2,000 years ago could have an effect on you today. I urge all of you this morning to consider where you're doubting the power of the gospel and where you need to let God's word correct, encourage, and strengthen you this morning. So this morning I want to look at what the unashamed gospel life looks like. What is that? How do we do it? And I wanted to look at this passage uh, primarily because of verse 15, which is right before our text this morning. Paul says he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome to the recipients of this letter, who are Christians. That's what I want to do this morning. 
Why is he eager to preach the gospel, the good news of God's salvation offered freely in Jesus to Christians? Aren't they already saved? Well, Paul unpacks this for us in the next two verses, which are the thesis statement for the entire letter. So, Paul says he's eager to preach the gospel to Christians because he's not ashamed of the gospel. And he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. And it's the power of God for salvation because in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So then Paul is saying that there's a relationship between being ashamed or unashamed of the gospel and one's confidence in the power of the gospel for salvation. He says that he's unashamed because he knows that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And he knows this because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. So, My burden this morning is that we understand what the unashamed gospel life looks like. Which I'm going to define as the life lived in unshakable confidence in the righteousness of Jesus for salvation. The unashamed gospel life is the life lived in unshakable confidence in the righteousness of Jesus for salvation. To understand this, we're going to look at the scope of salvation given by the gospel to the whole Christian life, past, present, and future. So first, we're going to look at the past. That the gospel saves us from the penalty of our sin in the past by crediting us with the righteousness of Christ through faith. So Paul says that this gospel, the good news that's announced about Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection— saves because it reveals the righteousness of God. Now that phrase, righteousness of God, is kind of a difficult phrase for us to wrap our minds around. But if we look to the context of this passage and the rest of the book of Romans, as this is the thesis statement, we should be able to figure out uh, what he means by this phrase and then how then that saves. Paul's eagerness to preach what he calls good news seems odd to me when we initially think about the phrase righteousness of God. Mainly, it seems odd because of the next two chapters. Paul says in verse 18 that God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. And then Paul sets out to make an impeccable, logical case that all people, men and women, both Jew and Greek, which is shorthand in the Bible for everybody, is unrighteous. Concluding in chapter 3 that none is righteous. So God is angry at and reveals his wrath against unrighteousness, lawlessness, ungodliness, evil, wickedness, uncleanliness, whatever we call it. And Paul says that describes us. And yet, he says that God's righteousness being revealed is supposed to be good news. I know very keenly that I am not righteous and that there's no way to satisfy this righteous God by my life. But if we look at the context, we see that Paul is talking about salvation, good news, right? 
And he says that this is good because it reveals the righteousness of God. Therefore, this righteousness saves. And then he quotes from Habakkuk and says that the righteous man shall live by faith. So in one phrase, we have the righteousness of God. And in another phrase, we have the righteous man that will live by faith. So, the connection between the two, the connection between the righteous man and the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, is this faith. Meaning that the faith, that faith in the free grace of the gospel makes one righteous with the righteousness of God. Paul makes this clear in Romans uh, 3, 21 through 22, when he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the astonishing news of the gospel is that this is good news that the righteousness of God is revealed because it's freely credited to those who are unrighteous but look in faith to Jesus Christ. Paul builds on this in Romans 4 when he looks at the faith of Abraham and he says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So God saves us from the penalty of our sin by giving Christ our sin and him paying the penalty of the death that we owed, as Brian so powerfully explained last week, that Jesus was forsaken for us. But then also, not only that, but his perfect obedience before the Father is credited to the one who looks to him in faith. The one who trusts in Jesus and what he has done as the sole basis for our salvation. As Romans 4 makes very clear, righteousness is counted or credited to those who look to Jesus in faith. Credited as if you had done it. This is the meaning of the doctrine of justification. That by God's grace through faith alone, we are forgiven just as if we had never sinned. But not only that, we are credited with Jesus' perfect record before God just as if we had done it. Freely credited the righteousness of Jesus I think I could say that phrase a hundred times in a row and still be astonished that that could be true. Freely credited the righteousness of Jesus to stand before God, free from his wrath, but also free to his love and his pleasure. For unrighteous sinners like you and me, this is amazing news that God God would freely give us what he requires of us. So that is how the righteousness of God saves us in the past. But I also want to look to, how does the righteousness of God save us in the present? Because salvation is no less than those glorious truths 
but it is much, much more. It's not simply our ticket to heaven, but it has a great deal of implications for our lives right now. So our second point is that the gospel saves us from the power of our sin in the present by conforming us to the righteousness of Christ through faith. This truth is implied in our text in a couple of ways. First, Paul says that this salvation is revealed from faith for faith. Meaning from the start to finish, it is of faith. Meaning he doesn't have in mind just a moment when you accepted Christ or prayed a prayer or walked an aisle. He has in mind the whole life of faith. Also, the quote from Habakkuk says that the righteous... That is, right, we just discussed that the the righteous is those credited with Christ's righteousness shall live by faith. And it is this faith that you live by that credits you with the righteousness of Christ. So to live by faith is to live by the righteousness of Jesus. What does that mean? How do you live by the righteousness of Jesus? Well, this is the idea of sanctification. As we talked about justification in the first point, this is the idea of sanctification. And in regards to sanctification, I believe I've learned more from uh, an English Puritan of the 1600s named Walter Marshall uh, than anyone else. His book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, Growing in Holiness by Living in Union with Christ, is such a deep well of truth for weary souls. And I commend it to you. The reason I love this book so much is because it hits on this point that I'm trying to make. That the power for our salvation is found in the righteousness of Christ. Not just for heaven and for forgiveness of sins, but for the power to kill present sin. He says in there that this is the key error Christians fall into in their lives. They think that even though they have been justified by a righteousness produced totally by Christ, they must be sanctified by a holiness produced totally by themselves. Isn't this true for you? I know it's true for me so often. But the truth of the scriptures is that we are made right with God by Jesus' perfect obedience and that we are progressively made more holy by that same perfect obedience by being conformed to it. Now, all of Romans 6 hits on this idea. Romans 6 starts with the question that's begged by our first point this morning. If what you say is really true, that righteousness, this perfect obedience has been earned by another and is offered free of credit, why the heck would anyone pursue godliness? Why would you want to live a holy life if this is freely offered to you and you just take it by faith? That's the question that's begged, and Romans 6 answers it. And Paul answers it by saying that you are conformed to the same righteousness that has been credited to you freely. You see, he says that you are to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God because your life is now wrapped up and united with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He says that at one time before you were a Christian, you were a slave to sin and unrighteousness. But that Christ's death 
and his righteousness being credited to you forgives you. And it breaks the power of sin in your life. It breaks the power of sin by giving you a new nature. One that is obedient from the heart and a slave to righteousness. To Christ's righteousness. Paul picks this up again in Romans 8 when he declares in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is huge. We often talk about predestination and election unto salvation, but sometimes I think that we miss that this is included in salvation. If you're in Christ, you were elected in him before the foundations of the world to be conformed to his righteousness in this life. That means that holiness will be produced in the Christian life. And if there's no holiness, there can be no way that Christ lives in that life. But, before our sinful hearts jump too quickly into legalism, we must be reminded that we are conformed to the image of Christ, not to a better version of the old sinful you. The Christian walk of sanctification is not one of getting a little better day by day so that the old sinful nature gets a little less sinful. No. Again, Walter Marshall corrects us, When he says, indeed, the whole purpose of Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection was to create a holy nature for you through himself. He imparts this holy nature to you as you live in union and fellowship with him. He did not suffer, die, and rise again to enable you to produce a new nature by your own effort. If you could do that, Christ lived, died, and rose again in vain. So what does this look like practically, to be conformed to the image of Christ? Because I want us to avoid two errors in this. The error of pulling up our old sinful nature inch by inch to be a little less sinful in our sinful nature. But I also want us to avoid the error of saying, well, I have the righteousness of Christ, perfect, uh, the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to me, so I shouldn't struggle as long as I let go and let God. I don't think that the scriptures teach either of those ideas. But that the sanctification, the Christian walk of sanctification, is the bit by bit revealing of the new nature of Christ in you. The revealing of who you actually already are in Christ. It's the unveiling from one shade of glory to another. The righteousness of Christ that has been credited to you as you are conformed to it molded by it, and shaped into it. To get how this works, I think we need to meditate deeply on Romans 6. It's here where we get, in the book of Romans, Paul's very first command to the Christians he's writing to. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Oh my. If you think... That Christianity is about a bunch of moral rules merely, you could not be more dead wrong. This is the first command after five chapters of grace, grace, grace. And what's the command? Grace. All that stuff I said, believe it to be true. 
That's what the command is. Believe it to be true. That's amazing. The other helpful passage in this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Where Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So to be conformed to this righteousness of Christ that is ours in the gospel, we behold it. We dwell in it. We look at it. We meditate on it. We turn it over to know it's every facet and truth. We look at the glory of God which means we must be in awe of the gospel every day. We must be unashamed of it, and then this will happen. Slowly, but surely, being conformed to the righteousness of Christ will happen. So if you're an angry person, and you want to grow in your dealings with anger, look to Jesus' patience. Study his slowness to anger. Behold it, study it, love its glory, and worship him because of it. And by his spirit, you will begin to be conformed to it because it's yours freely by grace through faith. The whole of Christian sanctification can be summed up with be who you really are in Christ and not who you are in your old sinful nature. Remind yourself of this truth daily. Take the mirror of God's word, hold it up to you, look at it, love it, and be conformed to the Son who is your life. Now finally, our third point, to add grace upon grace. The gospel saves us from the presence of our sin in the future by confirming us in the righteousness of Christ through faith. That the gospel saves us in the future from the presence of our sin by confirming us in this righteousness. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 3 3-4. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. And back to Romans chapter 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, We were saved. All of these verses talk about the reality that our passage this morning hints at. That the righteousness of God saves us past, present, and future. And that Jesus' righteousness saves us in the future by our being confirmed in that state of holiness and fellowship with God forever. And eternity No sin. No struggle against sin. No temptation. 
no unbroken fellowship with God, no distracted prayers, no lustful thoughts, no fits of anger, only pure righteousness and joy and love. This is the dream of every movie, the plot of every great story that we love, the happily ever after. And it's greater than that because it's true. Our final eternal state is one of being confirmed in the righteousness that Jesus Christ, the God-man, earned for us through his perfect life of obedience and his substitutionary death. And all of that is given to us freely in the gospel and is accessed by faith. Our blessed eternity will be lived not just through a promised, real, credited righteousness of Christ that's counted as ours, or or just even a conformed righteousness that's ours in part. No, it will be a confirmed righteousness that will be ours in full. We will finally be confirmed in this righteousness. And it will be a better state than Eden, better than Adam and Eve had, because we will not just have a perfect righteousness, we'll have the very righteousness of God confirmed in us. This is the doctrine of glorification. And all of this that we've talked about uh, this morning, justification, sanctification, glorification, all of these are given to us in the gospel. All of this is the power of God for salvation. And confidence in this leads us to the unashamed gospel life. So as we conclude, I want to lay out several guiding principles to the unashamed gospel life. The life of unshakable confidence in the righteousness of God in Christ, credited, conformed, and confirmed in us. So number one, the unashamed gospel life refuses to establish a righteousness of its own, own, but leans on the credited righteousness of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, You're ashamed of the gospel and the righteousness of Jesus that's offered to you. There may be other reasons that you're not a Christian, but at the end of the day, you just don't think it works. That something Jesus did 2,000 years ago could save you from the wrath of God for your sin. Or maybe you think you've got to clean your life up first so that God would accept you. No, you have no hope of cleaning your life up before God accepts you. You don't need to do that. Don't doubt the power of the gospel to save completely and truly and wonderfully. Jesus has done everything necessary for salvation. Everything. Come to him. He is, as we sung earlier, mighty to save. But if you are a Christian, you might be leaning on your own righteousness as well. I can't pray or spend time with Jesus because I've sinned. And I've got to make up for it somehow. Or I need to serve God in this way, in this ministry, to make up for my life. That's an an ashamed gospel life, not an unashamed gospel life. If you have faith in Jesus, you are righteous. End of story. That's it. Don't be ashamed of that. Which leads right into point two, that the unashamed gospel life is honest about sin. You are credited with the righteousness of Christ Jesus, the perfect, sinless God-man. What do you have to fear 
and confessing your sin before God and others. Be honest with yourself and with others in your past and present struggles. You know, we all say that church is a place for broken people that are being healed by Jesus. But if that's true, why do we act like we've got to have ourselves cleaned up and put together in our relationships with one another? We can call it what we want, and I know I always have a justification in my heart for not being honest with my sin. But at the end of the day, it's us being ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And you are credited freely with the righteousness of Jesus. We're righteous in Christ. Let's be honest about our failures to live like that. Three, the unashamed gospel life relentlessly pursues gospel holiness. We want to be honest about our sin, but not glory in it. Yes, you are credited with, the, with Christ's righteousness, but you are also being conformed to that same righteousness. So kill sin and pursue holiness and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I say gospel holiness because it's the sanctification that we talked about. Not one that's apart from faith in Christ or pursuing intimacy with him. But I also say that this is relentless because you are engaged in a spiritual battle between your old nature and your new nature. And you're always engaged in that battle. Whether you know it or not, there can be no peace treaties with the old sinful nature. But rest assured, like we've already looked at, you have everything in the gospel to fight sin for a lifetime and make it to glory. Jesus bought everything, including your sanctification. The instance you become a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you to conform you to the image of Christ and the righteousness that you are now credited with before the Father. So you have all the resources with you to attain holiness in this life. Not perfection, but real sanctification and gospel progress. You have the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the body of Christ You have no excuse to live in sin. So cling to the power of the gospel and fight arm in arm with your brothers and sisters in Christ against your sin and theirs. Number four, the the unashamed gospel life sets its hope in the life to come. The Christian life, as amazing and great as these blessings are that we've been talking about, has never been, nor ever will be, your best life now. It is always your best life now later. And maybe we know that, but do we live it? Does the idea that our righteousness will be confirmed in the future and that we will live in unbroken fellowship with God affect the way that we spend our time, our money, our energy? Does it affect the way we, what we set our hope on? Number five, the unashamed gospel life unashamedly proclaims Christ Jesus as the Lord and Savior of the world. Talking about an unashamed life, you're probably wondering when I would talk about evangelism. That's like the first go-to. But I wanted to save it here because if these first four things are true, we will live remarkably different lives than the rest of the world. But that's not enough to live an unashamed gospel life. If these really are true of us, evangelism will come naturally and we will want to share the gospel with our friends, neighbors, co-workers, 
because we don't doubt its power to save. Now, get this right. This is not evangelism by guilt. Oh, yeah, you say you love Jesus, but you don't talk about him. You're ashamed. It's not what I'm talking about. That's a weak motivation, and it will never last. What I am saying is that the gospel is a sure foundation for salvation. It's powerful. Trust it. Love it. Share it out of the joy of your own salvation. Finally, and we'll conclude with this, that the unashamed gospel life always remembers the cost of the righteousness of God that has been so freely given to you. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every day, remind yourself of this truth. Every day, focus on the gospel. For life to be yours, Christ had to die. For fellowship with God to be yours, Christ had to be forsaken. And for righteousness to be yours, Christ had to take your sin. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy to us. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your righteousness. And Lord, that you have saved us powerfully. Lord, would you conform us to this righteousness as, Lord, we wait for the confirmation of this righteousness in the future. We love you, Jesus. Make us love you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen.